This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the Dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. It's plain to me that when you're dealing with communications at the scale of the internet and social media, uh, you can't have law because law requires human judgment and human judgment doesn't function at the scale of the internet. So the internet is going to be governed by AI and the issue will be how you politically legitimate the, uh, the operation of an AI. That seems to me the fundamental legal question, political question here. We are continuing our series of special episodes commemorating Yale Law School's bicentennial. And today, I am delighted to have the former dean and current Sterling Professor of Law, Robert Post, join me in the studio. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to meet today. It's such a pleasure to be here, Heather. It's a delight. So I want to talk a little bit about the law school that we both love. Uh, And I think you would agree it is a place that prizes individuality and uh, a heterodox view of the world among its students and faculty. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think sets Yale apart from its history um, and and what makes the place special. Well, to me, what has always made Yale special is exactly what you just mentioned. It it prizes eccentricity, and I myself, I'm in love with eccentricity, and uh, um, uh, with, if a person is uh, idiosyncratic, that makes them interesting to me. And uh, so when we, have, uh, when we have students, what we try to do with our educational system is to keep them who they are and educate them to what they already are. So I'll give you um, a simple example. Uh, Reva, my wife Reva Siegel and I were once recruited by Harvard to go up there and start a program in legal academics. This is before I was dean. And um, we both uh, have taught a seminar here for many times called Democratic Constitutionalism. And this is a seminar about the boundary between law and politics, how political mobilization changes the nature of constitutional law. Law is distinct from politics, and yet law is influenced by politics. How do you conceptualize that boundary and that dialectic? And so it's a course that isn't your ordinary law school course. It's not doctrinal. It's not black letter. It studies the phenomenon of of uh, law formation. And so we taught that seminar up at Harvard, and I had the opportunity to compare um, students at Harvard Law School and students at Yale Law School. And uh, each, uh, whenever we teach the seminar, the students produce a paper. And the papers at Harvard, I would say, were much more professionalized and disciplined uh, and perfected than the papers of the students at Yale. Um, they were um, they uh, they were uh, precise. They were clear, um, but each paper asked a question that could be answered, which means they asked a trivial question. Um, whereas the papers of the students at Yale, they were bigger, they were sloppier, but they asked questions that mattered to the students, questions which were deep enough that they couldn't be answered. So. Um, we realized, Reva and I realized, that if we were to go to Harvard, we would have to deprofessionalize the students before we could teach them to be academics. And we didn't want to have to do that. And that's one reason we said no. But the, the bottom line is that what we preserve at Yale is the individuality of the students, and we make the law go to the student, not the student to the law. 
And that's extremely precious gift that we give our students, and it's unique. So you have been a student here, a faculty member here, a dean here. Could you talk about, you're talking about 74 to 78, could you talk a little bit about how the place has changed since you were a student here? Well, that's an interesting question. I would say um, when I was a student here, you did not have um, the same emphasis on public interest. Um, the clinics were nothing like what they are now. I mean, we had great clinical teachers, first-generation clinical teachers, Denny Curtis and Steve Weisner, um, but uh, they were teaching the traditional uh, lawyer-client relationship in a case. And um, I think under Harold's leadership, who was the dean before me, Harold Coe, um, we began to staff our clinics with the like of uh, Mike Wishney and Munir Ahmad, and now clinics are in the business of law reform and policy making. Totally different sense of what the clinics do here, and that has taken over um, uh, the interest of the students in a way that it would not have been the case um, when I was here. That's one major difference. The second major difference is that faculty members now um, in a way that was not true when I was here, are, are policy entrepreneurs. So when, when I was dean, to recruit a faculty member, you needed to create a center, particularly if they're in a, a public law um, area. So to recruit Abby Gluck, you had to create a health center, something like that. Uh, and uh, th the reason why faculty members want centers now is they want to have new ideas about how to use law to reform a subject matter area, but they want to be able to implement it, to push it, to make it real in the world. And that's what uh, these um, policy centers do, which makes Yale fill a gap in Yale University. Yale University has no public policy school. But we are the public policy school now for Yale because of these centers totally new. There wasn't anything even approaching that um, when I was a student here. You know, so I, especially for domestic policy, since of course we have the wonderful Jackson School, but th this is a perfect segue because, you know, you graciously gave the nod to Harold, but a lot of the growth of the clinics and their importance grew under your deanship. I remember coming to you when I wanted to start a clinic. And the thing that was so fantastic is I brought my students in and, you know, they were meeting the great dean and sort of the great First Amendment scholar. And you got down with us in the weeds of the doctrine within about three seconds. And I got to see Robert Post, the lawyer. Uh, and you made my clinic possible, as well as so many others in all those centers you built. It's really extraordinary. Well, to, I mean, there's a number of things I want to say about that. The first is, um, I think the dean should be the person who says yes and encourages faculty like yourself to express yourself. And, and you know, to your immense credit, you know, you're not just a black letter scholar. You're also a scholar who intervenes in the way of this clinic. And that's like amazing, Heather. And that you wanted to use the institutional resources of the school to do that. That's exactly what a dean is for is to encourage that kind of initiative and that kind of relationship with your student. That's the function of being a dean. And so it was a great pleasure to do that. But also, I could see where the interests of the, the students were. I think now we have an issue of balancing. I mean, I know students now take four clinical courses in a semester. And uh, I don't know whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, but it's something we're going to have to think about. But um, it was important that they grow. And so, as you may know, 
um, I changed the administrative structure of the dean's office. We have deputy deans under the dean, and so there, there, I think under Harold, there had been a deputy dean basically for curriculum and who does what the deputy, one deputy dean now does, and there was another deputy dean what, for what he called intellectual life who did all of the lectures and things like that. And, and my feeling was I'm going to do the intellectual life, but the clinics needed immense um, centralized administrative um, support because we had issues at that time. I'm sure you've solved all of them, but we were starting to solve all of them about malpractice insurance, about standards of ethics, about conflict checks. And, you know, we have many, many growing clinics and and we're a little bit like a law firm. So you needed to have centralized administration to make this work. And we didn't have an administrative apparatus that could do it. So um, I created a deputy dean for clinical and a deputy dean for non-clinical education. And um, I think they've uh, that really went a long way toward legitimating the clinics and bringing them into the central, um, the, the central educational project of the school. And I also, um, as you know, changed the voting patterns of the what what clinical professors could vote on. Yeah, it was extraordinary, and I, we've kept those traditions. It's really mattered in terms of knitting our community together. Together. I know it's so important because in so many schools, um, the clinical professors can be hived off, and that was a very bad thing. Can we talk a little bit about uh, about Baker Hall, which is yeah. for uh, we are actually doing our podcast in our recording studio, which we never had before. Um, but Baker Hall was one of your extraordinary accomplishments. It was desperately needed. It's the first building we built in 100 years. And and you did it during the Great Recession. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Well, uh, um, so I uh, just to give a little background, when I became dean, it was 2009, and our endowment had just plummeted 35%. <laughs> And, uh, you know, as you know, Welcome we're, to Dean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're a school that um, uh, we're not a tuition driven school. Tuition pays, at least it did in my day, about 35 percent of our budget. Is that approximately where it is now? And so most of the rest has to come from endowment. And if your endowment goes down 35 percent, it's, you know, it's averaged over the years, but it's a huge hit. Um, Kate Stith, who was the interim dean before I became dean, did a, a yeoman's job in doing cuts. But. I came in and I had to make a lot of cuts, but the crucial issue was to make the cuts in a way in which the faculty didn't feel them. So um, one of the projects that um, Harold had foreseen and made provision for was that we were running out of space. Um, I think during Harold's deanship, the last dorm room in Sterling Building had been cannibalized, so we had no dorm rooms. But, and, and that's important, and it was especially important to alumni, but even more important is we, we had no room for, for, for growth. We didn't, have room, we didn't have enough classrooms for our curriculum. We didn't have enough offices for our administration. I don't need to tell you this. I'm sure you're struggling with the same problem. And um, so we needed, we desperately needed space, and it would be a wonderful thing if we could bring back uh, uh, um, uh, campus living to, to law students who wanted to live on campus near the law school. Now, um, Harold uh, had gotten a commitment from the Yale administration for Baker Hall. Baker Hall at that time was a swing dorm. They used it to house students who were um, uh, displaced as they revamped all the colleges. They were redoing all the colleges. And it was a miserable building. It looked like Motel 6. And if you remember back then, the faculty voted that we should not take Baker Hall because it was such a miserable building. Eight-foot ceiling. She was built like a brick house. (laughs) Exactly. It was just terrible. And um, uh, worse than that, uh, you know, the the university has now built the new colleges. I think 
um, that they were um, beginning to think about taking back Baker Hall because they wanted to build around the cemetery. And Baker Hall is an extremely strategic location for that. And so um, uh, the administration at that time was uh, thinking of uh, reneging, I think, on the commitment. I got a lot of signals like that. I did the best I could when one of the demands I made when I became dean is that we would get the fourth floor of of um, the building for uh, various centers. I thought, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law, um, but it really wouldn't have helped if they had done it. And then um, Peter Salovey became, became president, and I went to him and I said, I cannot raise the money to redo this building unless I have a firm commitment and I'm getting all these conflicting signals. It should have been, if they were keeping the commitment, an easy thing to say, yes, you have it, but it took him two to three weeks. And I'm sure he was at that time fending off the demands for the Buildings and Grounds Administration saying, we need that space. And he came back to me and he said, in a, with a very mournful air, <laughs> I would say, you said, you know, we made a commitment, we should stick by a commitment. And it was, a, you know, one of the great things that Peter did for the law school. And so then I could fundraise um, for the building. And my goal was to leave you, my successor, uh, with no debt, to raise enough money that we could cover the entire cost of of maintenance out of uh, endowment funds and of redoing the building so that it wouldn't add a penny to the operating costs of the of the um, of the school, that was one goal, and the second goal was to make it actually attractive, <laughs> which is not an easy thing to have done, because it, it, it turns out that the the spaces that has low ceilings, and it was cubicle in a way that made you feel like you were in prison. So we had to break out spaces, break between floors of a you know a, a building that's built on a on, on a cubicle principle, and that's a very expensive thing to do. So it raised the money that it cost in the redoing of it. Um, but we managed it, and I think it's a very attractive building myself now. Oh, it's spectacular. <laughs> I mean, so thank you to Peter. Thank you to you. Thank you to um, uh, uh, the Bakers, uh, Christine and Robert Baker, for for the gift that made it possible. And I will say, Robert, I remember when uh, you put me on the committee before I became dean that was working with the architects. And I remember watching you, and you would think about the color of the slate and everything else. And I have no aesthetic judgment <laughs> whatsoever. And I would sit in the back and raise my hand and say, how much does this cost? <laughs> but it's beautiful. And it's it's become, I, your, your idea was don't reproduce sterling but create a light and airy cousin and that's exactly what we have it's been it's wonderful so like you know today there's a conference in baker which we couldn't have held in the in sterling so it, the faculty are using it we have um, students who are living here who actually quite enjoy it i think we tried to make you know we couldn't make spacious apartments but they're like new york efficiency apartments oh they're much nicer than that i once <laughs> i once called them dorms and a student took me aside and said dean their apartments and they're lovely, um, and they have beautiful their beautiful furniture and and you know the students have you know midnight impromptu dance parties in the middle of finals. Uh, it's it's just magic that that people are living and learning under the same roof once again. It's yeah. fantastic. So Robert, I remember um, in 2017 when uh, I became dean and you handed over the mace. Yes. <laughs> you told me I was going to be maced, and I had no idea <laughs> what kind of hazing ceremony was going to be involved. But one of the things that you said as you passed me the baton, literally and figuratively, was uh, uh, let the flowers bloom under you. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the flowers for you or the flowers for your deanship. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to say that um, I had a lot of conversations with uh, Martha Minow, 
who was the dean at Harvard when I was the dean here. And, and Martha used to always say that the dean was always the smallest person in the room because your job was to facilitate others. And uh, I think we very much had the same idea of what a dean should be doing, which is um, it's not us that you're featuring, it's you. It's our faculty, it's our students, and let them take the lead. And if they're succeeding, that's what—that's the measure of your success. And it was, um, actually it was kind of surprising to me. I mean, I'm, I, I would say, mostly I'm an introvert. <laughs> you know, I really don't, don't socialize very much. I, I keep to myself, it's not a great qualification to be dean, I wanna say, but um, I, I, ha I had the sense of you know, just enormous affection for the faculty who were doing the work of the school when I was dean. I just loved watching them do their work. I loved watching them have this idea and that idea and being able to say yes and make it happen and make it work and fundraise for them so that they could do what they wanted to do. It, it just gave me immense pleasure, and it was a pleasure that was sort of mixed with a, a, a great deal of affection, um, which surprised me because I'm not normally that sort of a I'm not effusive that way typically, and and I'm pretty shy. But this was like, uh, it gave me just tremendous satisfaction to do that, and um, and it stayed that way. You know, like your success, your tremendous success, is the success of the school, and it's wonderful, just wonderful. Well, we have to talk about the the book. Um, <laughs> it's the homes the great homes device. It's been a, a, a project of thirty five years. Thirty five uh, on the Taft Court. I wonder if you could just so first explain what it is, so the people who don't aren't familiar with this sort of part of the world um, would know what it is. But then maybe talk a little bit about the book itself. So when Oliver Wendell Holmes died, um, he had no family and he left his estate to the government. So the government takes money from your estate when you die, but they've never had anyone give them money. And they didn't know what to do with it, so they sat on it for about 20 years. And they eventually decided they're going to fund a quasi-official history of the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, so it's edited by someone appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, with a editorial board, same. So this is a quasi-official history, which is divided by volumes that uh, correspond to the period of chief justiceship. And it's been a very long, very troubled history. My volume, which is the Taft Court, 1921 to 30, was originally given to Alexander Bickel in mm. 1953. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't finish it, and he died. And then it was given to Robert Cover. Oh, my goodness. And he didn't finish it, and he died. Robert, and you still took it under those circumstances. <laughs> and, then they, and then they offered it to me, and I doubled my life insurance, <laughs> and I said yes. And I didn't think I'd make it. <laughs> um, so the Taft Court covers period 21 to 30, and it was actually, I thought I'd drawn the short straw. I bet you can't name 15 cases that come from 1920. No one can. And like, who ever heard of the Taft Court? Because the 20s was such a muddled time in our jurisprudence. Uh, it was neither, you know, fish nor fowl. It was before the crisis of the New Deal and after progressivism. So what was it exactly? Um, and uh, so it took me many years to get going and to think through what the, you know, the real issues were. But what crystallized it for me was Trump because um, Harding is elected in 1920. Harding is the president that appoints Taft. He appoints four justices in less than 15 months in order to push the court to the right. Because remember, his platform is, let's return the country to normalcy. So the court is pushed to the right with an agenda to go right, which is like Trump with his three appointments. And in part, the book is about 
um, what it was like to do that and why the court overreached, leading to the crisis of the New Deal. But more fundamentally than that, the 20s was a time of intense polarization. It was so polarized that, as you know, in 1920, it's the one and only time in the history of the country that Congress did not reapportion based on a census. And the reason they didn't reapportion is because um, people had moved to the cities. And there would have been more people who were what's called wet, who were anti-prohibition, than dry, pro-prohibition. And the dries were not about to give up power in Congress. So um, anything that anyone said in this intensely polarized environment of the 1920s, there was industrial warfare, there was um, incredible racial violence. So the, the, the decade was a time of uh, resurgence of the KKK, 100% Americanism, an immensely polarizing decade. And the issue was, if you're a justice, how do you speak uh, in the accents that would be received as law rather than as your personal predilections, which is the same problem the court has now. And so the book is a study of the various narratives used by different justices in the 1920s uh, in which they would embed their opinions that would, they hoped, give them the solidity and the legitimacy of law that's for everybody rather than just my political point of view. So how do you make law under conditions of polarization is a major theme of the book. So it's so funny that you say that because the, the question I was about to ask you was how do you teach con law these days? And yeah, yeah. what I said to that conference was that, you know, I always regret how that I don't spend as much time in the classroom as I did before. And I always used to regret that I wasn't teaching con law. But con law these days is really hard to teach because the gale forces of polarization have upended structures that we thought were pretty sturdy. And it really changes how you think about the project. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you're doing inside the classroom when you're teaching our students con law. It's an immensely difficult problem, you know, and it's a different problem. I teach con law as a, you know, a first semester subject with a small group typically. And then I teach con law subjects to advanced students. But in the, in the first semester class, um, I teach it as a rule of law class. What does it mean to have the values of the rule of law? And I teach the rule of law not as a, a cognitive thing, but as a characterological thing. What do you have to be committed to if you're committed to the fact that we have law here? And um, those are aspects of professionalism that um, separate us from politicians. And so I put that front and forward as we watch con law develop and always take it back to the um, the rule of law points in it, not, you know, strictly stare decisis, but how you translate your political vision, because everyone's going to have a political vision, into and make it distinctly legal. And um, I, I say to the students at the outset, it's like uh, this is a process of socialization into law, and that means changing who you are. It's not just a cognitive issue. And um, so that's what I, I try to do. I teach it as a public law methods course. Uh, and I try to give as much space for the students to have whatever political view they want. That's not my business is to, is to adjust that. But my business is if you're going to say that, then you have to take this if you're in a legal system. You can't have both. So which do you choose? How do you choose? How do you make an argument in the legal system to someone who disagrees? What's plausible given what you now know? What isn't plausible, et cetera? Um, when I teach, a, you know, like, First Amendment, 
to advanced students, I have very distinct ideas. You know, what is the only you way to make sense? You invented part of the field. <laughs> <laughs> What's the only way to make sense of this? So I don't, I'm not teaching that as a character law. I'm teaching it as substantively. How would you make sense of this area? Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to the first amendment. First, I want to ask you a little bit about AI, because I know that's actually been something you've been thinking about a lot. It's something that every dean on this campus is thinking about a lot, as well as the administration. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you think AI holds for us as lawyers. Um, well, I, I see one of our graduates, Jesse, just uh, just saw a brief by uh, Michael Cohen that was filed that was citing opinions that didn't exist because they were generated by AI. <laughs> Je- Je- Jesse Furman. Judge Jesse Furman, Furman yep. yeah, exactly. Um, so... Uh, uh, Obviously, it's a tool. It can be used. It can be misused. Um, my particular, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about AI is I'm a trustee of something called the Oversight Board for Meta, what used to be called Facebook. So um, this is an, a body that is independent of Meta, and we exist to review Meta decisions up and down for posts for Instagram or for Facebook. Uh, in terms of uh, human rights, um, international human rights law. And so um, we apply the community standards of META and human rights, and we say, you got it wrong, and this is the way you should think about the problem. Um, But, of course, there are 3 billion posts a month or more for META, and we do 50 decisions. (laughs) (laughs) You are the Supreme Court. (laughs) So, yeah, what does it mean? Um, It's plain to me that when you're dealing with... um, uh, communications at the scale of the internet and social media, uh, you can't have law because law requires human judgment, and human judgment doesn't function at the scale of the internet. So the internet is going to be governed by AI, and the issue will be how you politically legitimate the uh, the operation of an AI. That seems to me the fundamental legal question, political question here. And so I have a lot of thoughts about that. One of the interesting things about AI is that it's trained. So you can train it with relevant stakeholders in a political field to give it political legitimacy, and then you can run it against the AI, say, of a company that's being run for whatever commercial purposes. And the where you have differences, that might be at the scale of the human. So how you begin to use AI in those fields of communication, which are now you know dominating the planet, where humans can't do the work. And we need, we need to have the equivalence of governance, and right now we don't. So the puzzle about legitimacy, Robert, I'm just curious to, if we can geek out for a minute, uh, for AI, is in some sense it's very much like the common law. So it takes a set of data points and it goes back and forth, checking its intuitions, finding patterns, and eventually sort of th- it thinks like a human brain. And and that, uh, that part is very c- closely connected to law. But it also is invisible to us. So it can't, I, I was in a conversation about AI and, and one of the folks was asked, what's the most surprising thing you found? They said, it turns out we get better results if we say please. And if, they, if, if we say please, they can't explain that. It is, it is not a human being. And yet there's this way in which it can't tell us how it went from here to there. Right. And in law, legitimacy depends on the ability to offer an explanation. So I wonder how you're thinking through that puzzle. Because um, that's exactly the point. We don't get an explanation. What we get is a pattern of results. But the interesting thing about AI is that it's recursive. So you, you're, it's always in training. It's always getting feedback, and it's adjusting what it's doing with the training. So the training process is the equivalent of the legitimation. 
And um, so you train it, then you see the results, and you train it again, and you train it again. And um, uh, that, to me, is the process that we have to take advantage to in a politically legitimating way. We can't do it by reverse engineering. It's not a mechanical process, as you say, for the reasons that you say. So we have to do it by outcomes, and we have to measure those outcomes um, and give input on the outcomes the way we do in a political system. And then... Um, and then we have to bring in the political system um, to adjudicate how the training is going to work, et cetera. That, that to me, is the avenue in. One of the things I love about uh, just this place uh, that you helped build is that um, even when you think about AI, when you think about the people who are working on these puzzles, they range from Scott Shapiro, an analytic philosopher, to Jack Balkin, who tech and con law and the First Amendment, to Bill Eskridge, who's teaching AI and civil procedure, and now and, and you. It's, it's amazing the range of literacies that we're bringing into this conversation at this I'll, moment. I'll give you a, an example. You know, I, I am a co-reporter for the Restatement Third for Defamation and Privacy. So, um, you know, the big challenge of restating uh, privacy and defamation law is you do it for the age of the Internet, which didn't exist in 1977 when the first second restatement was written by Prosser. So I'm having to rethink how you imagine this in a virtual world. Uh, so I'm drafting the defamation sections now, which are very complex, but I'm going to get to very soon the privacy sections. And this is uh, mind-blowing. So uh, do you remember the metaverse? It didn't really flower, but what it was is a virtual world in which you would be interacting with others all around the globe in three dimensions. So you would build a house, you would bake a cake, you would do things together, you could have a meeting together. I think in about 10, 15 years, we'll have a world in which that's true. You can already buy glasses the, uh, in which you, know, you can be. Uh, so um, I was thinking, I have to determine what privacy is in the real world, but what in the hell does it mean in the virtual world. If you're building a virtual house, is that the equivalent of a privacy space in these things? So AI and and the the creation of these virtual spaces for privacy, I, my mind was blown, actually, watching how this happens and be trying to think how you make this translation. There's another place where you've really influenced me. I mean, there's so many different examples, but one recently is that you, know, you are the great expert on the First Amendment, uh, and and but you're also an academic and an expert in academic freedom, and I have been so influenced by your thoughts about we were, the way we're framing campus speech questions and. You've often said, and you have written, that that a lot of university leaders are making a mistake in the way they frame these questions, and we're not thinking about it properly. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, we're having this conversation at a time when three university presidents just had, a, let's say, a rough time in their in their testimony before um, uh, Congress, and it was um, uh, the ironies in that uh, exchange are, are are extremely deep. So. Uh, you may know that there has been a drumbeat for the application of the First Amendment on campus. You should never censor speech. It should be just like the First Amendment on campus. Uh, and this was being said again and again and again in critique of various campuses that were making judgments. And so when Stefanik uh, questioned these three presidents and she said, uh, would you allow um, speech that advocated the genocide of Jews, they gave an answer that said, it depends. And that is the answer that one would give if one were um, answering according to First Amendment law. 
because for the governing First Amendment precedent is Brandenburg. And Brandenburg says, of course, you can advocate illegal conduct like genocide so long as you don't intend it to happen imminently and it's not likely to happen imminently. So they gave a First Amendment answer and they got creamed for giving a First Amendment answer. Why did they get creamed? Because, in point of fact, everyone knows you can't apply the First Amendment in terms to an academic space. We're a community that's dedicated to a mission, education, and research, and we apply the forms of freedom that are appropriate for that mission, whereas First Amendment freedoms are appropriate for the creation of a political community, a democracy, and we're not a democracy. We're, we're a school. And uh, these presidents, by not having a sharp line of their own, not understanding uh, and having the courage of saying, you know, we're not First Amendment. We are academic freedom that has these properties. And of course, we wouldn't tolerate something which would be so destructive of a community that it would no longer exist. Insofar as the speech met that criterion, um, they were... They were um, uh, uh, they got subject to intense backlash. And uh, so I think what we need to have is a very clear line about what we do and don't do. We have to be proud of it. One of the things I've really also um, learned from you is just, and it's so embedded in this place, is what it means to be a learning environment. So, you know, I often say to students, we expect you to do a lot more than have conversations across divides. We expect you to have friendships across divides, and we have to create a world where people can make mistakes because that's how you learn. And if you don't change your mind at some point, then we have failed you as, as pedagogues. And, and I, and I, um, that is very much about things I've learned from you, but also just things that are in, in the warp and woof of this place because of, of its community. It's so true. And when you give that message, I'm so proud that you did that message to the students. When I was Dean, I tried to model failure because one of the things I noticed about our students at that time is that they were so good they had never failed, and they were terrified of failing. And so they would um, they would take an easier route because they know that they wouldn't fail if they took it. And to me, this you know you're not going to succeed really unless you do risks. And so I would say you know I went to graduate school and I failed and I did this and I failed, and I would try to model them as like yeah you fail and then you get back on your feet and you're okay you know in the end. You could do okay with your life. Uh, and it's a really important thing for these students who are vulnerable, I think, in ways that um, we were not vulnerable when we were young. And I think that has a lot to do with the economic circumstances in which they live. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're admitting students now, thanks to you, with your great programs about the financial aid, which we couldn't admit in numbers before this. And that means they have different kind of needs. And we have to we have to be here to meet those needs, to recognize them, et cetera. So we're having this this interview on on the occasion of our two hundredth anniversary. So it's quite spectacular to have to have two hundred years behind you. I wonder as you look forward, especially thinking about the things that you built. That I mean, you said flowers, but many of them are now sturdy trees. <laughs> um, as you sort of think about the things that you built and extend forward, what do you see in the next hundred years for this place? Hundred years. What do you see in the next ten? You ask, you ask an historian to think in a hundred years. It's like impossible. In the next ten, you know, I think I think the the torch will pass from your generation to the next generation. It's almost inconceivable, but it will. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine. It's going to be um, it's going to be a school which um, I think 
will be even more diverse than it is now uh, and, and in all kinds of dimensions, class, I think probably internationally too. Um, it'll be a school that um, uh, maintains a, a proud history of being omnicompetent. You know, competent in the, you know, if you want to be an artist, you'll be an artist. If you want to be a policymaker in the government, you'll be that. If you want to be a, a firm partner, you'll be that. If you, I mean, just the sense of you can do anything coming out of the school. Guido used to say we are like a, um, we're like an école normale in France. You know, once you, once you get this certificate, you're good for your life. Um, I think our students don't actually believe that till after they graduate, but then they get a sense of how true it is. But before graduation, they don't. I'd love it if they had the sense of that when they were here so they could take advantage of the resources. That I would love. Well, thank you for making so much of it possible. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm always, uh, when I sit down in my office, as you know, uh, the, the shadows of the deans um, whose names are carved in the window run across my desk. And it can be intimidating on occasion, but it's also a source of joy because um, sitting in that seat, I realize there are a lot of very different people who held it before me, and yet the institution continues. So broad shoulders for you to write on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but thank you for all that you did to to steward and protect the school at some of the hardest moments that we'd had. And thank you, Heather, for keeping it on in such a glorious way. Thank you.